Hello, welcome to Cambridge Black History Month Celebratory Podcast Session One. I'm your host, Amy Weber, CEO of Cambridge and host of Cambridge Stronger, a podcast where culture counts and values matter most. Cambridge has always been committed to diversity. However, we've recently doubled down on the efforts, and today we're kicking off a two-part podcast series to honor Black History Month. Cambridge is a financial solutions firm, and therefore we're focused largely on increasing awareness around the lack of diversity in our own industry. Cambridge is also seeking opportunities to make Cambridge stronger by featuring our partners who share our purpose and values. Recent studies show that 82% of all financial professionals are white, and only 3.8% of all certified financial planners are people of color. Clearly, diversity matters. In this part one, I'm thrilled to have Wendy John, Head of Global Diversity and Inclusion at Fidelity Investments with us, as we talk about creating a diverse and inclusive workplace, one that creates relevant and differentiated experiences for clients. Wendy, welcome, and thank you for sharing your expertise with our audience today. Amy, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here and to have this conversation. Fantastic. So let's start with you sharing a little bit about your background and specifically what led you to your area of focus at Fidelity. Well, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting journey. So I'm actually originally from Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean. And I, I will say I am part of a strange group of people because at the age of 16, I decided that I wanted to be an actuary. And so I left Trinidad to attend the University of Waterloo in Canada to study actuarial science. And then when I graduated, made the decision to move to the U.S. because there was a high demand for actuaries and I wanted to have the opportunity to work at one of the top consulting firms. So I was recruited to Boston to work for then consulting firm Towers Perrin. And that's actually how I first got exposure to Fidelity. And in a weird twist of fate, I left Towers Parent. I went to a small boutique actuarial consulting firm. And then about, I don't know, less than a month at that company, it was announced that we were being bought by Fidelity. So I actually came to Fidelity through an acquisition and, you know, it's been nonstop ever since. So I've now been here for over two decades and I've had the opportunity to do many things beyond actuarial work. I've been a program manager implementing some of our largest clients. I've managed global workforce strategy as well as then running the operations for part of our business. And then I became a managing director. So I actually managed client relationships before I got to this point where I'm heading up diversity and inclusion. But what I would tell you is that I've been doing diversity and inclusion work throughout. I'm the third head of, of DNI at Fidelity, and I partnered very closely with my two predecessors. In fact, I worked with our first head of DNI to establish our employee resource group policy over a decade ago, which became the foundation of what now is 10 affinity groups at Fidelity. And I've also been involved in a lot of our mentoring efforts across the various affinity groups. So I would say it's been a passion of mine, but it really was last summer presented me with the opportunity to take on this role. And I view it as a a true opportunity to give back to an organization that I've spent a long time with and want to see succeed in this space. That's really a fascinating story. I truly believe everything happens for a reason. And part of your journey reminds me again that as doors open and we walk through them, amazing things can happen and we find our place. And that's very inspiring. So thank you for sharing your why this with us. 
Let's jump into some questions. Census data suggested that by 2045, a mere 24 years from now, the U.S. population overall will reflect whites as a minority. So talk to us about why you think it's important to minority clients that they work with firms that are culturally diverse. It's a great question. And, you know, it's funny because people often wonder, why is an actuary doing DNI work? But my favorite course in, when, in, at university was actually demography, which is all about this, this change in the demographics of, of, the, of the world and of the environment. And so our customers have become more diverse than ever. Fidelity will be celebrating its 75th anniversary this year. And our customer, when we look across it, our customer base is very different than when we started. So it's really important that we evolve the products and services and the solutions to be relevant to those customers. The clientele that many of us built our businesses around has changed. And so even though you, what you described seems like it's 24 years out, the reality is that they're different today. And so we feel a sense of urgency to ensure that we understand those diverse perspectives. And, and the best way to do that is by having employees and associates with diverse backgrounds that can really relate to the customers and, and sort of somewhat anticipate their needs. What we offer will have to continue to change as wealth transfers occur to what will be the most diverse generation yet. And so we just need to be thinking about that, not so much as something that is, is 20 years out, but more as something that's really immediate and, and with greater priority. We have to reflect the, the people that we serve. And that's why I'm particularly passionate about the opportunity we have to not only bring in more diverse perspectives, but to really leverage the diverse perspectives of the associates we already have today. Absolutely. And it can be a long and complex journey. So to your point, you can't wait. If you're starting now, you're probably behind. Yes. But the important part of that is getting started. Right. So you're right. It's complex. And this is this is the long game, but it is just important that we get started. And I think the start begins with looking at our, our workplace, doing that introspection and really determining how inclusive is our environment. Right. Because you can hire diverse individuals, but if you don't have the right conditions, I kind of talk about it sometimes a lot about, you know, using an analogy of like baking a cake and I'm not suggesting I'm a master baker, but you can have all the right ingredients, right? But if you don't know how to get the best out of those ingredients or the order with which you mix them, that doesn't mean you're going to end up with a perfect cake (laughs) or a perfect loaf of bread. So it's, it's important that you set the conditions, right? You know, to make sure that you can really amplify the diversity of the individuals that you bring into your organization. Great point. Also, do you believe that firms can differentiate themselves with all of this in mind? Is this a differentiator? Absolutely. You know, I, I, I think it's important that we, we really think about what we do with the diverse perspectives that we, we bring to the table. So the competition shouldn't just be around the talent, right? So the solution isn't we all poach each other's diverse talent. The solution is we all go out and create more opportunity for people from diverse backgrounds to enter into financial services, to really understand what it takes and what's involved with building wealth. Basic concepts around 
you know, savings and budgeting that then build into investing and, and, and wealth creation, right? It is a differentiator in terms of how we engage with our customer, but I don't think I would look at it as the way to sort of outfox our competition, right? We should all be creating great products, right? There absolutely is a war for talent, but how great would it be if there was just more talent to choose from? Right. And some of it is we have a macro issue in our financial services industry where we're not necessarily seen as being always the most welcoming to everyone. There's a number of both women and underrepresented communities that we need to ensure understand that they can thrive in our industry. Agreed. There's a perception out there with all that in mind, at least from the smaller firms that I've had these conversations with, that the barriers to the topic of diversity are too high. For small firms, they'll also talk about the barriers dependent on their geographic region. So any steps for creating and attracting a more diverse workforce for all companies, but in particular, special tips and encouragement for the smaller firms? Absolutely. I think, you know, so the, the reality is it, it, we have to expand our view of diversity. Right. The first thing is, I think I think we we do tend to anchor on visible diversity. And and the reality is that there's a lot of diversity that is actually invisible. So first, I'd say, you know, let's expand our frame of what diversity means um, and, and then to attract diverse talent. While geography matters, there are people with diverse backgrounds everywhere across this country. And so, you know, you know, I think we all are sometimes tempted to recruit from the same places where we know we had success before. But if you're really expanding your frame around what diversity is and, and diverse backgrounds, you need to recruit from new places. I would say, you know, look at adjacent industries and don't only look for people who have been in financial services roles because we can teach certain aspects of industry knowledge. We, we should be hiring for skills. And many of the skills in other industries are transferable to financial services. We should look at our job descriptions for whether they are inclusive in their language or contain biased language. Believe it or not, we have learned that there are words in job descriptions that actually are more attractive to people based on gender, based on their age. And so it's important that you're taking that into account because, you know, if it's not an attractive job description, then you don't even get that person to apply. And, and like I said, you know, think about diverse interview panels, because sometimes either both in our hiring practice or in our hiring process, there are things we're doing that we may not realize actually introduce bias. And it's important to know that diverse people from different backgrounds are interviewing us during that process. And they want to see diversity. Even people not from underrepresented communities want to see diversity when they're reviewing the company that they might choose to join because it gives them a sense of how inclusive the workplace is. That's a great segue. We're going to come back to inclusive in one moment. But a couple of points I just want to reinforce I love what you said about hiring for skills, and I've even, in my own environment, started to encourage the concept of hiring for potential. The skills maybe aren't even there yet, 
But it, to your point, in an interview process, listen, words matter, to, again, to your second really important point, uh, whether it's a job description or the interview process, and then listen for that potential, which I think strengthens the bench. You know, I, I would tell you that for myself, you know, I always set a goal every year to develop a new skill because I believe that this journey and around, you know, career building is about acquiring skills into your own personal toolkit. And so, you know, people often, and in many of the roles I've had since starting out in the actuarial field, people always are like, really, you're, you have like an actuarial background and you're doing this thing? Like, and I'm like, yeah, because, you know, we have to be careful about boxing people in, right? Because you can learn new skills. You can get experience in a different space and build upon core skills that you developed along the way. And so I think a lot of it is about matching people up with the opportunity and to your point, right, exploring the potential for that person. Uh, you know, we might be amazed at what people might be able to do and setting the right conditions. The other point I would say, Amy, it's really important to not just attract diverse talent. You know, it's back to that inclusion. It's what you do once that diverse talent is also in your firm. And that matters whether you're talking about a small advisor firm or a large company. You know, have programs that really help people feel valued and feel a part of the bigger system. We know that women and people from underrepresented communities need a level of advocacy and sponsorship over and above others. And just in terms of being able to be seen for that same potential that, that you talked about, we always encourage people, bring somebody along, right? I was fortunate in my early career to get to sit in on some meetings, right? So this is back in the day before Zoom, but I was able to sit into these meetings that were by conference call. And just even, I was silent the whole meeting, but I got to observe the dynamic of how the flow went and, and that taught me a lot. And so I think if each of us did that with somebody more junior or somebody from a different background, we might be surprised at the impact that has. That's great. Great advice. And inclusion is really important to your point on the retention side of things. So maybe we can give our listeners some specific ideas if you tell us a little bit about Fidelity's approach around inclusion, what are the actionable items that a firm or even a solo who's looking to, you know, potentially just start growing the employees that are surrounding them, what can they think about as they're trying to define inclusion as opposed to diversity? Sure. So, you know, I like the definition of inclusion that talks about or frames it in terms of psychological safety and the willingness it's safe to ask questions it's safe to challenge the status quo and my identity matters right when when people's identity matters and it's respected and they feel comfortable to ask a question right like there's no dumb questions there's no consequence for asking questions or even throwing out ideas that are different from the norm they feel more included and so, you know, my colleagues in Fidelity Institutional, they offer practice management resources and thought leadership related to diversity and inclusion that helps us think about it in really three ways. First is building that diverse and inclusive organization. What are some steps that you can take to do that? And then how does your firm create space for dialogue? 
because that's a lot of, you know, how you get to even understand how, you know, and creating that opportunity for people to ask those probing questions, right? You do have to create these safe spaces. And then understanding and engaging with your clients in an inclusive way is important. So how do we practically do that? Well, we actually, you know, I mentioned the affinity groups, right? The employee resource groups before. They really help us model inclusion within our environment. We are fortunate to have 10 affinity groups. They're formed around specific, you know, you know, either communities or areas of interest. So we, we actually have a subgroup called special interest groups, which include like our young professionals network, women in technology, our raise group for caregivers, as well as a new group impact, which focuses on sustainability. But why I bring these groups up is because even though they're focused on one community, they are open to everyone. And so they, they really provide a bit of a listening post and a learning agenda for many of us to just be able to understand better how another group might be experiencing the same environment that you're in. And so, you know, I think you have to utilize inclusive practices in all that you do. You need to layer this in, in everything you do. So a classic example is even just in team management. So think about extroverts and introverts. Some cultures inadvertently prioritize extroverts. And so just, you know, the extroverts talk up in the meetings, they, they take up all the space. And so you have to actually plan and have practices that allow for the introverts to also be part of the conversation. And so whether that's you share the agenda ahead of the meeting and invite people to weigh in in advance, and then someone else presents the introvert's perspective or opens up that discussion, or even rotating who manages the meeting, right, will then force different styles and different people to to be able to take a leadership role and to get their perspective. So, you know, those are some of the things in your working teams. I think the other thing around, you heard me mention identity. I love the, I don't love a lot of things about the pandemic, but I do love that, you know, we are using virtual platforms like Zoom and other things that actually allow us to add our pronouns in our name without having to have a a really, you know, long, complicated conversation about it. And so it's right there on the screen and it allows someone to tell you something about themselves that you might not already know. And for our non-binary population and others who identify differently from how they might appear, it's, it's just a really easy way to let others know how they identify. And it's really important for us that if someone takes that step to do so, that we respect that, right? And and try to acknowledge their identity in that way. So we are embarking on a journey this year to really help educate everyone about the use of pronouns, why that's important. You know, we're not mandating it because it's it's clearly a choice, but we think it's important for everyone to understand why that might be important for some of our associates and how you can better engage with them with the identity that they prefer. That at the end of the day is about what inclusion is, right? Inclusion is about treating people the way they want to be treated, not so much the way you might want to be treated. Yes, that is so important. And some of the messages I just want to reinforce that we've been talking about a little bit here today, again, for our listeners who maybe are at the earlier stages of their journey, are that there are different definitions of the words we're using today, diversity, inclusion, and I like to think maybe a place to start for 
many of our listeners might simply be to define those words for themselves and their organizations and take into account all of the wisdom that companies that are so far ahead of many of us have learned and the lessons that you've learned. So thank you very much for sharing that. So diversity and inclusion efforts can sometimes be intimidating and uncomfortable for a lot of different reasons. Change resistance is a real issue that industries and and firms have struggled with for years. Have you ever encountered that change resistance or fear perhaps around starting this type of a journey? And how have you handled it? It's a great question. I think it's a little bit sometimes the elephant in the room. Any change that you're trying to lead requires first starting from a place of education and awareness. And so when we're talking about diversity and inclusion, one of the things that I try to have everyone first maybe appreciate is that we don't actually all experience the same set of circumstances in the same way. To make that accessible, you know, I grew up in a household with my brother and my parents. And now in the pandemic, we have this weekly Zoom call and my brother recalls the same event completely differently. And I'm like, that did not happen that way. And so that's the same thing that's happening in our workplace environment. And it doesn't mean that his perspective is wrong. It's just a different perspective. And so we first have to be willing to actually just first listen, not not with the effort to refute or disprove what this other person is saying about how they're experiencing our environment, but first just getting that awareness. I think there are aspects of diversity and inclusion work that produce a reaction that is one of shame. And that sometimes informs the resistance because we often are proud of the work environments that we're in, the success that we've had. And when we look sometimes at the lack of progress, we feel embarrassed. Like, how is it possible that, you know, this is happening and we weren't aware of it? And so this is not work about judgment. And it's certainly not work about blame. It's really about once you recognize that there's this opportunity, how do we come together in a way where we can create more opportunity for others, right? It's not about one fixed bag of goods and now distributing it differently. How do we expand the opportunity? That's why I talked about, you know, increasing the pipeline, right? And and really broadening the scope and the opportunity for others to be a part of this great work that we all do in financial services. So, you know, I think the resistance is only human and it is part of any type of change effort. But what I stand firmly on is we have the ability to unlearn things and the ability to learn new things. It does mean giving up some things we believe in (laughs) and as we learn more. And so if we approach it from a learning standpoint and an awareness standpoint, I I do think you can overcome that resistance, but you have to respect where people are on the journey. We're not all at the same point. And so some of us are now starting, some aren't even really that aware yet, and others have been living this their entire lives. And we all have to come together with a common purpose. Thank you for addressing that elephant in the room. That's really impactful for our audience. And the key word I just took out of what you shared with us is respect. And I also like to phrase it around here in all kinds of situations. We just need to give each other a little grace along the way. So 
to wrap up the session today, I'd actually like to close with a call to action for our audience. I believe, without a doubt, that this is a team effort. It's a team effort in the industry. It's a team effort in the country, in all industries, quite honestly. So with that accountability gauntlet thrown down, what can we all do today? Where do we start to help move the needle on diversifying the financial services industry? Well, Amy, I love that you framed it that way because we do think of it as being both a macro and a micro issue. And, And we won't solve it just by focusing internally on our own efforts. This is something that we have to go at together. It's a collective problem for us to solve. And I hope for the smaller firms that gives them you know, reassurance and confidence that they don't have to go at this alone. We need to all be building a broader talent pipeline together to get historically underrepresented people interested in our field. And I'm thrilled that many of the industry organizations, whether it be, you know, SIFMA or ICI or IAA, right, are all focused on diversity and inclusion and how we engage with the communities that we serve, how do we build a more robust pipeline, and not just at the university level, but even before then, right, you know, for those like me who made decisions at 16 about what they wanted to be when they grew up. And we really do need to change the perception of financial services overall. Popular culture hasn't been kind to our industry. Movies and others like Wall Street don't help us. We have a brand perception problem. It it appears as being very cutthroat and doesn't showcase the fact that teamwork is core to, to most of our environments and also that we really do prioritize our customer. So, you know, at at Fidelity, we are actively working on a number of pipelines to get to high school students. We're looking at talent and identifying talent to bring into our asset management group from, you know, diverse universities or looking for diverse graduates at larger universities and talking to rising college seniors and creating programs, right? Paid internship opportunities. You know, again, it's about how do we build and make the case for there's a place for you in this industry? We've also created what we call returnships. So talented professionals, primarily women, you know, we've heard a lot about women leaving the workforce during the pandemic because of other responsibilities. They might have taken a, a break, a career break. They have an opportunity to return to professional work through our Resume program. And then we're also to that point of looking at diversity across a broad dimension. You know, we have our Belong program, which provides inclusive learning and development for student interns of all abilities, right? Meaning, you know, that's kind of get tapping into the neurodiversity and bringing folks in who maybe just process information differently, right? This conversation, though, is a really important starting point. We all have a part to play. And it's not just about, you know, that what we do at the industry level, but focus on and and really do take a a look internally at where you are, where you have an opportunity to improve your diversity and move forward with intentional action, right? This, like I said before, it's the long game. Many people talk about, you know, it's a marathon, not a sprint. This isn't one of those, you know, business challenges that we're going to solve overnight or solve in a year. It does require sustained commitment, right? And a real focus and prioritization on it. And, I, and then I will end just to say where I started, I guess, is just 
we have a business imperative, right? Our customer base has changed and it is going to continue to change. The people that you talked about that are going to make up our population in 2045, they're already born. <laughs> a lot of them are already here and they're already developing a perspective and developing, you know, a knowledge and awareness about money and wealth building. And so we need to keep them in mind and be really planning for that customer of today, but also that customer of the future. So I look forward to the collective progress that we will all make and everyone needs money. So we need to make sure that we're, we're making that not as daunting a task as it has seemed for many, and also just understand that money is an emotional topic for many. It, it has cultural stigmas in, in for many. And so we, we should bring that to bear and be really tailoring our products and our services and our engagement with that in mind. It's interesting how the perception of our industry is still very much the same as over 30 years ago when I was choosing, well, not choosing to enter the financial services industry because of all the things you're talking about. And people today that are 18 years old, which is when I found myself thrown into a financial services role due to an internship work-study environment that I had to do, not that I wanted to do. Unlike you, actuary, accounting, math, not where I, was, I thought I was headed. I thought I wanted to be an attorney. But it is fascinating that when I talk to young people today, they feel the same way that I did back then. We've, not, we've really not been good at solving that particular issue. It's a really great point. Yeah, you know, I, I think the other thing, Amy, is there are a lot of women and people from diverse backgrounds that are ready in the financial services industry. I think, you know, we're all probably a little bit guilty of doing and not doing enough telling. So what we need to do is make sure that people can, that we make those people more visible. Because what I know was really important to me is that even though I entered into a profession that maybe at the time did not have a lot of women or you know, people of different ethnicities, at least in the US, knowing that when I found a community of, of black actuaries and, and could literally see myself in the role, it made a huge difference. And it didn't need to be necessarily at the company I was at, right? And so I think that's where as a collective, as an industry, we need to think more about Whose voices are people hearing when they think about financial services and just make sure that we're creating space for everyone? I love what you said earlier about not just focusing on the college age and getting down into the younger generations. Some actionable examples I know are for the listeners out there, again, who potentially haven't thought about how they could contribute there's career and technical advisory councils at high schools across the country. They could w reach out to the administration and talk about how they could contribute. There's also career academies, and there, there's financial services strands. They could get in there and volunteer. To your point, you can't be what you can't see, to use an old phrase, and it's important. They don't take a lot of time. They can take as much time as you want them to, but put yourself out there so that you can contribute to these efforts. And that's why Fidelity, even in our community relations and our community engagement, we've always prioritized financial literacy and education. And, and you know, we, we started first with doing classes for some of the lower grades, but now we actually also engage teaching the teachers, right? How to then teach that curriculum. 
you know, we'll close with, you know, a bit of a personal story. So you are right. There might be some genetics at play. My father was an accountant, but, you know, I would tell you that for me, my early days experience with money, and now I'm really going to date myself, but there used to be a time when if you were going to take coins to the bank, you had to bag them. <laughs> and I'm sure many of us remember having money jars, right? Where you just collected all the change. That was my job. At, at my house. And so a lot for me, my love of math came from having to count those, count those coins, right? And I was always just amazed that sometimes when you emptied out that jar, even though it looked like all these, you know, pennies, that that was like $25 or $50. And so there was just something about that experience, whether my parents were being really intentional or not, that made that something I thought about and understood. We didn't talk about money though in my household. We didn't talk about it even when I got to the point of going to college. That wasn't a conversation. So I, I just say that to say we have to start this conversation earlier and we have to like make it not such this either daunting thing or that you need to have money to talk about money. You know, so I just think that's where we have a real opportunity. Absolutely. There you have it, Cambridge Stronger listeners. You have your marching orders. Remember that every small action contributes to the effort of making a difference. Every step you take in embracing what can be, at times, uncomfortable can assist in breaking down barriers and contributes to making our industry stronger, more resilient, and more enduring. Wendy, thank you for taking time with us today and sharing your expertise on diversity and inclusion in the workplace. Any last words of inspiration or encouragement? Don't think about diversity and inclusion as one huge change effort that you need to lead or be an expert at. The work of diversity and inclusion is not simple, but getting started is. So just take one first step today and then you'll be on the journey with us. It's inspiring to hear your enthusiasm and feel your energy. Best of luck on your own and Fidelity's continued journey. And thank you again for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Cambridge Stronger. I invite you to listen to my podcast episodes where I have candid conversations with genuine inspirational financial professionals and leaders within this fiercely independent financial services industry. The best of the best, the strongest of the strongest. You can listen to my podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and the Podbean app. If you like what you've heard, please give us a review and head on over to our blog for more content at cambridgestronger.com. That's cambridgestronger.com.